This is the letter that changed the world. It really did. The religious world was changed by the book of Romans. And tonight, Trinitarian grace. The Father sends the Son into the world and the Spirit into our hearts. Without the Father sending, there would be no salvation. God so loved the world. It's in the heart of God that it has its birth. If God just loved us but didn't send Jesus into the world, his love wouldn't do us any good. Jesus' life and death pay for our sins. We were just singing about it. If Jesus died on the cross for my sins but the Spirit never came into my heart, Jesus' death on the cross would do me no good. The Spirit comes and applies the work of Christ to my heart. You may not think much about the Trinity, but without the Trinity, you're lost. There is no Christianity without the Trinity. And this passage kind of looks at how it works out in terms of our, our salvation. So Romans 8, four verses. Do you have that text in your notes? Let's read it out loud, okay, all together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a text. First thing I notice when I read a verse like that, this is, I can't read the Bible any other way anymore. There, I'm, I'm thinking of authors who, who uh, I read who taught me this, and now it's just glued in my mind. When I read a verse like that, the first word I look for is that word, therefore, the connectors. Always look for the connectors. What that means is everything he's going to say is based on something he's already said. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. So he's going to go back to something that he's been referring to that leads him to this conclusion. They link up with Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 7. That's what Paul means when he says there is therefore now no condemnation. So because of what I've already said, in view of what we've just studied, there is now no condemnation. So there's some previous reason for what Paul is saying in these verses from Romans chapter 8. But it's not the whole of chapter 7 he's referring back to. He's really expanding on those first six verses of Romans chapter 7. We studied them last week, actually two weeks ago. In chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, Paul uses the illustration of uh, adultery, death, and remarriage to describe the new relationship of the Christian to the law through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll talk about it more in just a minute. Now in chapter 8, Paul wants to explain how those who are in Christ, that's us, those who are in Christ 
are freed from the condemnation of the law. And they're enabled. There's two points he wants to make. That's the first point. We're freed from the condemnation of the law. That's point number one. And then secondly, we're enabled by the power of a new living relationship to Christ through the Spirit to become more alive unto God than we ever were before. That's, that's the second point. So those two points are what we're going to look at tonight. Point number one. And I want to analyze this a bit. You don't analyze uh, Psalm 23. You don't analyze uh, John 15. You don't analyze the Lord's Prayer. You just, you just soak up. But when you come to passages like this, the Holy Spirit has done it in such a way that he's, he's calling us to follow a train of thought. So here's the first point. Through Christ's sinless life and sacrificial death, the Christian is free from the condemnation of the law right now. Look at that first verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think it's important to look at what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying. He's, he's, he's not saying we are experientially perfectly righteous right now. Sin-free. I mean, Romans 7 is not being ignored in those first words of Romans chapter 8. There are still struggles. There's still failures for which I mourn and repent. The issue isn't sinlessness. The issue is condemnation. So the dominating power of the law's just condemnation of my sin, it's not removed because of my righteousness. Here's the important point. It's not removed because of my righteousness. It's removed because of Christ's righteousness. Paul picks up those words twice in verses 1 and 2. In Christ Jesus. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is addressing a really huge question here. Given the holiness of God, given the inevitability of final judgment, what, what are we going to do with our Romans 7 feelings of guilt? What are we going to do with that? How shall we face what we know to be true of our our inner thoughts, our inner attitudes. I mean, the only hope we have is that we are no more tied to the guilt and condemnation of the law than, and here's the Romans 7, 1 to 6, we're no more tied to the guilt and condemnation of the law than a wife is guilty of adultery when she marries someone else after her husband dies. That's what Paul's saying in those first six verses of Romans 7. Paul's going to explain what he meant in Romans 7, 4 when he described us as being joined 
to Christ as our new spouse. That's what he says in those, that opening part of Romans 7. That's the illustration he's using. We're joined to Christ like as our new spouse. That's the key to everything. So, so my only hope is to know from divine revelation the, the potency of the last part of verse 3 in chapter 8. So by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What is that about? What is that all about? He's saying, God the Father, he's the judge. He can't look favorably on sin. Not ever. God the Father condemns my sin in Christ's flesh on the cross. Now, with that understanding, look at it again. By sending, that's God, by sending his own son, that's Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh. It wasn't sinful flesh like ours, but the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. Whose sin? If he was sinless, whose sin is being talked about here? That's all it can be, right? Can't be anything else. So, the Father, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for my sin, for Don Horbin's sin, he condemned sin. Whose sin again? Can't be condemning Christ's sin. He didn't sin, right? Whose sin gets condemned? He condemned my sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Christ's flesh. It's a beautiful thing, church. I hope we never get tired of it. God doesn't ignore my sin. He punished it thoroughly. He condemned my sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what we mean when we were singing about the lamb that was slain. Through the lamb that was slain, I'm, I'm forgiven. Not, by, not because I'm righteous, but because my sin was condemned. God condemned my sin thoroughly. He didn't wink at it. In the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul's going to talk about the result of this transaction in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 8. Who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That, by the way, is you, me. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? There's that word. It's the Romans 8, 1 word, condemnation. Who is, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. My sin was condemned there. And he says, more than that, who was raised. Why does he do that? So my sin was condemned in the flesh. Christ's flesh, my sin condemned in Christ's flesh on the cross. And then he says, and even more, he was raised. Why does he add that? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. We all know it. That's the penalty of sin. How, how do I know Christ successfully paid the penalty of my sin? If there was just the death on the cross, I would know he died for me. How would I know that was adequate? How would I know God is satisfied? Well, because 
the wages of my sin are paid for. He rises from the dead. He conquers death. The penalty is overcome completely. You ought to be happy in that, church. It was your biggest problem and mine. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 8, 1, here's the important word, there is now, as you sit here tonight, you are not perfectly righteous yet. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness, justified. But you aren't sanctified perfectly yet. But even so, right now, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He, he means there's no prosecutor anywhere, in heaven or in hell, to make a case against you. If you're in Christ Jesus, not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's perfect righteousness. That's where my sin was condemned, on the cross. That's where it was judged. That's where it was so completely paid for that the curse of death is removed, triumphed. It can never be reversed because Jesus will not die again. It can't be undone. There's a finality to it. God will never condemn Christians in judgment when those same sins were condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. And everyone said, it's good news. Now, on to the second issue. The removal of condemnation while crucial to Christ's work, is not the whole goal of his saving work. I can understand how the condemning power of the law is broken through the saving work of Christ. I can at least begin to get my head around Christ bearing my sin, resulting in my release from condemnation. It's precious beyond words but at least sort of graspable. The, the, the more tricky question is, how does this change my behavior? Not just my standing, no condemnation, but my lifestyle. How does this work? Well, we know we can't turn to the law for freedom from condemnation. We know that because all the law can do is condemn us when we fail, and we will fail. We're going to fail because we're weak in mind and heart. We're sometimes inclined with sinful desires. We sometimes react reflexively rather than in Christ-like patterns. Sometimes we're conformed to this world more than transformed by the renewing of our minds. And all we can do in those times, and it's beautiful right now, all we can do is we turn to Christ for freedom from condemnation. But where do we turn for sanctification? Where do we go for transformation? Transformation of habits. Transformation of actions. That's what he's going to deal with in the next part of our text. So Romans 8. I want to look at 2, 3, and 4 and talk about them a little bit. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life, capital S, the law of the Spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus, this is not something in yourself, it is in Christ, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law 
weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law can't make you holy. It just tells you what you shouldn't do and points out when you do it. <laughs> That's what the law does. Don't do this. You did it. That's the law. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. All right. We looked at that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to I deal with two issues. Simply put, how can Paul say we have been set free from the law of sin and death? That's first. Second, how does the law of the Spirit of life accomplish this freedom for us? Those are the two questions. So here's the first one. How can Paul say we... Right here in this room, because we're talking about us here. This isn't some theory spinning out there in seminary somewhere. It's talking about your life. How can Paul say we have been set free from the law of sin and death? And if you think that's a simple issue, let me, let me put it differently. How can we be said to be set free from the law of sin and death when Paul has just described this experience in Romans 7? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in, in my members uh, there's another law. Waging war against the law of my mind. And, and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So, do you see what I'm asking? How, if that's, if that's true, Romans 7, 22 and 23. In what sense, really... Can Paul say we've been set free from the law of sin and death? The law of the spirit of life, Romans 8, 2, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what kind of freedom is he talking about? Do we struggle with sin or not? It's a pretty basic question, isn't it? And the answer, I think, is this. The answer is we are, through the Holy Spirit of God, we have been set free, not from struggle. We have been set free to struggle with sin. You see, Paul describes what my mind, what your mind was like before we came to Christ. Here's what he says about it. It's in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's in 18. 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 24. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Now, those verses do not describe any struggle against sin. They describe a resistance against God. So here's a person moving in only one direction. Here's a person ruled by 
rebellion against God. But Christ comes. My sin is paid for, condemned in the flesh of Christ on the cross. The Holy Spirit comes and works in my heart. Something new is happening in Don Horbin now. It wasn't there before. No, I'm not made perfect. Not yet. But I am now set against the kind of sins I used to cherish. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The eyes of my heart have been enlightened, Paul says. It's a very complex process that Paul describes in Romans 7, 20, 21, and 22. He says, he says now, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, in Christ, we are set free in gratitude to rise up against indwelling sin in a way we never could before. We are made anxious to struggle with its former dominance that we used to just accept. So, in answer to our first question, yes, we are free from the old dominance of sin, but it's not a passive freedom. The new birth has wrought this seismic shift, like a massive earthquake on the ocean floor. And through Christ, we, we see our inward sin for what it is. It isn't just the breaking of a law, it's the breaking of a father's heart. And we love him, so we grieve over sin. We see our inward sin now as an enemy to be overtaken. We never saw it that way before. We may have been disappointed in the kind of person we were. Oh, I wish I was a better person. That has nothing to do with Christianity. Atheists want to be better people. But suddenly when the Spirit of Christ came into my heart, it was, it was a love for God. It was the grieving of the Holy Spirit. That's what broke my heart. That's what made me rise up against sin. Not just that Don Horbin might be morally improved. that my life would bring glory to God who did so much for me on the cross, condemned my sin in the flesh of Christ on the cross. And it doesn't just bring a clean slate. It does do that. But it brings a motive of love and gratitude that I didn't have before. So on to our second question, I said. How does the spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. And Paul's point here I think is quite simple but really profound. The law, the law cannot set us free from sin because the law can't change our nature. That's it. The law cannot remove our the law cannot remove our inclination to love other things more than we love God. That's it. The law cannot remove our inclination to love other things more than we love God. But the death of Christ on the cross can change our affections. Restructure them. Reorder them. 
The law only causes us to resent God because it points out all the parts of our lives that don't line up with his will. So far from helping us to love God, the law causes us to resent him. That's what Paul means. That's what Paul means in Romans 5.20 where he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. So the law can't remove our reluctance to love God. It increases our reluctance to love God. And, and not loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the greatest sin there is. So where, where will we go for help? Where will we go for help? How, how can we love our enemies instead of being angry with them? How can we treasure God more than we treasure wealth? How can we be Christ-like when we might be married to an ungodly spouse? Clearly, just knowing what we're supposed to do, that's not enough. Paul points to the spirit of life. The indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what he does in verses 2, 3, and 4. For the law of the spirit of life. See it? Has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. If you're going to get what Paul is saying, you need to remember some earlier teaching from the book of Romans that there's really only one sin that dominates all of mankind. There's one sin that dominates all of mankind. Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 1, 21 to 23, where he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. They became futile in that thanklessness. Meant they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise they became fools. And exchanged the glory of immortal God. For images resembling mortal man. And birds and animals and reptiles. And if those words sound archaic. Let me let me thought into modern speech so in today's language here is the essence of sin we love creation more than we love the creator we have a love affair with the things of this world wealth leisure power pleasure acclaim influence these are more precious by far, to our fallen hearts. We see more to be desired in these things than in the glory of our Creator. That's what sin is. That's what all sin is. And Paul says that the law of God, while it's holy and good, it can't create a love for God in our hearts. It can't. So, so what God does for us is this. He does two things, not just one. First, he sends his son 
into this dark, rebellious world to bear our sins. We're free from condemnation right now, tonight, right now. We're free from condemnation. That's, he sends his son into the world, but he does something else. He sends his son into the world, and he sends his spirit into our hearts. You know what the spirit does? The spirit helps us to see how glorious what Christ did really is. He motivates love that moves way above the law. This is done over and over again. In the bu- I, I didn't, I wasn't planning on uh, doing this. this is, Paul does exactly the same thing in verses that everybody quotes. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Have you ever noticed those famous verses about the renewing of the mind and all? You ever notice how they start? What is the fuel for this renewed mind, this transformed character? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. If you understand God's mercy in Christ, that is what the Holy Spirit uses, not just to remove condemnation, but to renew your heart, to lift your sights, to increase gratitude, to make you hate sin in a way that the law never could. He releases love for himself in our hearts. That's what Paul meant when he said in 8.15, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's what the law does. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He, He turns our hearts to God as Father rather than to the law for instruction. A love-releasing work. In order that, 8-4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but, a, but according to the Spirit. God didn't save you just to take you to heaven. You were saved in order that, 8-4. In order that. The beauty of righteousness might be displayed for all to see, that people would see your good deeds and they would glorify your Father in heaven. So the whole Trinity is involved in your salvation. And, and there's no part of it that can be left out. No part of it that can be left out. God is the sender. It's his love that initiates everything. He sends his son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh so that my sin is condemned in the flesh of Jesus. It's fully paid for in the flesh of Jesus. But God refuses, knowing my weakness, God refuses to leave that at a doctrinal level. What he does, after sending his son into the world, he sends his spirit into my heart. And what the spirit does he warms my heart to that. I see beauty in it. It draws my heart out in love. 
not to the keeping of a code. The law gets fulfilled. The law gets fulfilled in my life incidentally as the Spirit helps me to live lovingly toward Christ. And when that happens, it won't be a matter of just not murdering. It'll be like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I deal with the anger too. All of the things that pollute the heart, even if they don't reach outward action, those things will grieve my heart because I see what Christ did for me on the cross. We sing it, don't we? Love so amazing, so divine, say the rest. Demands my soul, my life, my all. But it's, it's not a law demand. It's a, it's a wooing demand. It's a drawing demand. And there's freedom and joy there. And holiness to boot. 